thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday, January the 30th, World Leprosy Day. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. And me, Diana O'Carroll. This week, we're putting leprosy under the microscope. We'll find out where leprosy is found in the world today, how it's transmitted and treated, as well as we'll peer into the past by looking at the impact the disease leaves on bones. In Planet Earth, we listen to the music composed by earthquakes. And in Naked Engineering, Dave and Mira find out how the reflective cat's eyes laid into roads actually work. And in the news this week, we find out why our model of the circadian clock might be wrong, how the bacteria that live inside a cow's gut could make better biofuels, and why groups of animals make better decisions than one animal on its own. And we find out how some bacteria keep making rapid changes to their genome, avoiding the immune system as well as preventing us from making effective vaccines. If you'd like to get in touch through Twitter, you can just tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page, that's at the Naked scientists.com slash facebook or you can drop us an email our address is chris at the naked scientists.com the naked scientists podcast is powered by uk fast the uk's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.co.uk This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Diana O'Carroll. And first up, we'll take a look at some of this week's top science stories. Biological clocks play an essential role in physiology and in controlling behaviour, from regulating sleep cycles in animals to balancing photosynthesis in plants. Now, research published in Nature suggests that our model of how the clocks work might actually be wrong. Current models of circadian clocks rely heavily on feedback loops that are based around transcription and translation. That's the reading of DNA and the subsequent protein production. Essentially, the product of transcribing clock genes in turn regulate how associated genes are expressed, and that leads to a roughly 24-hour feedback loop. But now, John O'Neill and Achillesh Reddy at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge have shown that non-transcriptional mechanisms are capable of maintaining a clock in human red blood cells, which have no nucleus and are therefore incapable of transcription. To study the clocks in red blood cells, they looked at a family of antioxidant proteins called peroxyredoxins, or PRX, which is an awful lot easier to say. They are responsible for clearing reactive oxygen species like peroxide out of the cell. A subclass of PRX molecules undergo an oxidation reduction reaction, also known as a redox reaction, with a very regular cycle. To assess PRX's suitability as a clock molecule, O'Neill and Reddy took red blood cell samples from healthy volunteers and stored them in darkness and at constant temperature. This enabled them to take samples from the cells every four hours and confirm that this redox 
Equinox cycle did indeed take around about 24 hours. Now, then they needed to see if this system fulfilled the other criteria of being a clock molecule. So they attempted to entrain the cells to a cycle of high and low temperature. Now, this mirrors the temperature variations you or I might experience on a daily basis. After just 48 hours, the PRX redox cycle was seen to sync with the new temperature regime. PRX proteins are very highly conserved. Now, this means that they're found in a huge range of species, including mammals like us, but also in plants and in algae. In a related paper, also in this week's Nature, Andrew Miller from the University of Edinburgh, along with colleagues here in Cambridge and also in France, showed the same mechanism in action in Osteococcus tori. That's a single-celled eukaryotic alga. Now, this raises some very interesting questions about our current understanding of circadian clocks and it raises some exciting prospects for our understanding of clock evolution. So it sounds almost like there's a clock acting without a brain, a circadian clock without its DNA brain, which is a very odd situation. It's a very interesting situation and it just shows that what we thought we had a pretty good grasp on this but really we don't and we need to because it's very important if you look at the the illnesses that people suffer as a result of shift work, then messing with our biological clocks obviously has profound physiological impact. Scary stuff. Well, also this week, a team in both Hong Kong and Chicago have found that the levels of activity in two specific areas of the brain can be used to predict how well someone is learning a second language. Lehigh Tan and colleagues found that the left chordate and fusiform gyrus areas of the brain displayed more activity the better the language student performed in their tests. Now, the fusiform part of the brain is located at the back and the base, while the chordate is found closer to the centre and is shaped a bit like those hooked headphones that you get in sort of put them over your ear. Um, They used fMRI, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging, in between tests taken by 26 10-year-old Chinese students and they were learning English. Uh, They were given the first written test just before the fMRI scan and the second one a year later. Now, during the fMRI scan, the children were asked to identify written English words and they found that those who demonstrated the greatest amount of activity in the chordate and fusiform regions during the scan performed better in the first and second tests. So publishing in the journal PNAS, Tan and his team believe that the amount of activity in these two brain areas can therefore be used to predict how well a student will do when they learn a second language. So can I use this as an excuse for me being absolutely appalling at learning languages? Yeah, obviously they're just turned off. <laughs> um, <laughs> that bit of my brain must be missing, I suppose. Oh, well. Also this week, researchers at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute have been looking at changes in the genome of a troublesome pathogen, Streptococcus pneumoniae. This bacteria is responsible for a broad range of human diseases, including pneumonia, ear infection and bacterial meningitis. Fortunately, because this bacteria has been infecting humans for so long, we have samples from all over the world going back many, many years. And this means we can compare them genetically to see what has changed in response to modern antibiotics and to vaccines. And we're joined now by Dr Stephen Bentley from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. That's a pleasure. Now, the idea that bacteria change genetically in response to drugs or vaccines isn't new. We've known about this for a while. What's novel about your work? As you say, we've, we've known about these phenomena occurring over time since antibiotics have been in use. But the kind of breakthrough that we have in the, the projects that we're now able to do has been driven by our ability to sequence large numbers of genomes. Ten years ago, when we, tried, when we sequenced the genomes of things like TB, Macrobacterium tuberculosis, 
one project to sequence the genome and one isolate which was chosen to represent the species would have taken a couple of years and cost one or two million pounds. The new sequencing technologies allow us to sequence hundreds or thousands of isolates at a cost of around £100 per isolate and the, the turnaround of generating the sequence data is, is down to a matter of weeks. That allows us now to exploit the collections of isolates that you mentioned earlier to really drill down onto the evolution of a, of a population. So what samples have you actually been looking at? I understand they are from all over the world and actually going back quite a long time. The idea of the project was to really use the whole genomes to analyse the evolution over, the, over the, the period since the introduction of antibiotics. So when we uh, tried to collect the samples, we were looking for as much geographic and temporal uh, coverage as possible. So the collection that we ended up with was 240 isolates spanning the period 1984 to 2007 and covering 22 different countries around the globe. And what sort of scale of changes are you actually seeing in the genome here? Substitution mutations, which basically occur at random, um, one of those will occur approximately every 15 weeks. Um, but there's another mechanism for variation, which we call recombination, and that's basically where the bacteria are able to swap uh, DNA with their neighbours. On the BBC website, there's a, a guy, James Gallagher, who's come up with a, a really nice analogy. That's like going down to the shops and uh, swapping eye colour with someone in the queue at the checkout. But for the bacteria, that means that they can generate enormous amounts of variation in their genome. And each variation that's generated then can be selected for possible advantage. So in a situation where the organisms are being exposed to antibiotics on a regular basis, which is what's happened in all bacteria since the introduction of antibiotics in the 60s and 70s, if they acquire a variation in their sequence which gives them an advantage over the rest, that's going to give them a good chance of uh, proliferating. Now, obviously, the bacteria can't, uh, as you say, meet down the shops and have a chat and say, I've got these bright blue eyes, they've been really useful for me for survival, why don't you have a copy? Mm -hmm. There can't be a process by which they know that if they translate these genes from another cell that'll be useful how does that process actually work is it is it quite random it is entirely random so um what happens with with streptococcus pneumoniae they they uh, live in the human nasopharynx and as far as we know that's their their only um, natural niche um, but there are other other bacteria that live there some of which will be members of the same species but maybe only slightly related and then there's other species as well and as cells grow and divide and then go through a cycle where there's actually death, so some cells will lyse, lysing the cells releases the bacteria into the environment and that allows bacteria like uh, strep pneumo to potentially take up that DNA. So th this ability to take up DNA from the environment is not um, ubiquitous in bacteria. It only happens in certain species. But strep pneumo does that, and it is entirely random, and some people have thought about whether it might actually be for nutritional needs as much as anything that they take up the DNA. So the randomness is there, but then selection kicks in. So it's really, if the variation you introduce is disadvantageous, then that will very quickly die out. If it happens to give you an advantage, then it will proliferate. 
With all these random changes, do you see changes evenly across the genome or are there regions that are very heavily conserved and regions that are very highly variable? Yes, yeah, so we see these uh, variation hotspots in the genome and it's interesting that those variation hotspots tend to be associated with surface antigens. So the major surface antigen in streptomyoma is the surface polysaccharide and that's one region where we've seen frequent recombinations. Now, these are the sugars or the proteins that are on the surface of the cell that it actually presents to, say, our immune system. Exactly, yes. And what's interesting from the data that we've seen is that that region is a hotspot, so it is swapping that in and out with, with its neighbours and changing its, uh, its surface polysaccharide. But these changes were already in the population at fairly high levels, so that in around 2000, when we started to introduce a vaccine, which targeted those surface polysaccharides, we could see that in the population there were already variants generated which were going to be able to evade that vaccine because they didn't have the vaccine target. So they essentially come preloaded to avoid our, our vaccine attempts. The population does, yeah. How can this help us to develop better vaccines or better antibiotics? Already, the, since the seven-valent vaccine was introduced because these capsule switches had been spotted, new generations of vaccine have been generated where they now target 10 or 13 of those types. So going forward, we would hope to be able to continue to monitor the population in very, very high resolution using whole genome sequencing so that we'll be able to understand better how the pathogens are responding to the, to the clinical practices and then maybe we can adjust those clinical practices to make them more efficient. Excellent. Thank you very much and thank you for joining us. That was Dr. Stephen Bentley. If you'd like to read more about that, it's published this week in the journal Science. Now, animals come to better decisions more quickly in larger groups, according to research published in the journal PNAS this week. Group decision-making is seen in many social communities, from ants to humans. In fact, it forms the basis of financial markets and even the behaviour of the internet. It's clearly evolved many times over, but exactly how the decision-making process in a group differs from that of any one individual is actually quite hard to determine. An international team of researchers, including Ashley Ward at the University of Sydney, and Jens Klaus at Humboldt University in Berlin created a very simple decision-making task. It's a Y-shaped chamber where one path contains a replica predator and the other path is clear and safe. They then introduced mosquito fish, these are Gambusia holbrookii, to the task either on their own, in pairs, or in groups of four, eight or sixteen. They then monitored how the fish moved and which direction they chose to take to see if, a, if the group's size would alter the speed and the accuracy of the decision-making process. They found that lone fish took longer to reach a decision, swimming more slowly and changing direction more often. But even then, they only chose the safe route a little over half the time. As the group size increased, the decisions became more accurate and much faster. In fact, the larger group chose the safe route up to 90% of the time, and this is despite swimming faster and taking a more direct route. So the next step was to try to work out why groups are so much better at these decisions. As the variation between different lone fish was actually insignificant, this rules out the idea that any particular fish is an expert at spotting predators, so they're not benefiting from these few stars amongst the group. There is some evidence that the group does divide the responsibility of being vigilant. Now, that means each fish needs to scan a smaller area, so the amount of direction changes they make will reduce in a larger group. 
Task sharing like this also means that the fish must rely on social cues in order to make the decisions, and that was seen when observing the fish who were closest to the leading fish. This research suggests a very high degree of cooperation, division of labour and very rapid communication between members of the group. And these are all factors that would promote the evolution of group decision making. Now, I think you know what I'm going to say, but... um... (laughs) As anyone who's ever attended a naked scientist meeting will know, <laughs> um, that's not. Uh, is that really true? Um, well, I, I, I do wonder if perhaps the importance of the decision, if it's life or death, uh, it, with regards to running away from a predator, might be perhaps a little bit more important than uh, deciding what sort of tea we're going to buy and what biscuits we need in the office this oh, week. I don't think we uh, we talk about that. Perhaps it's more to do with <laughs> us sort of being radio people and just wanting to talk a lot. Maybe. It could be. We do all like the sound of our own voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be that. Um, well, also this week, researchers in America have dramatically enlarged the catalogue of known genes which allow an organism to break down plants. This new information could be very useful in producing biofuel from plant matter. So Matthias Hess and colleagues found their new biomass breaking genes and genomes swimming around in the rumen of a cow. Now, the rumen is a fascinating part of the cow's digestive system in which lots of bacteria, yeasts and fungi live. These microbes break down all the grass and leaves that the cow munches through so you can imagine that a probiotic yogurt means absolutely nothing to these host animals. Publishing in Science, Hess and his team were able to sequence a quarter of a terabase, which is an enormous amount, a trillion bases of genomic information from many different microbes involved in digestion. And they were also able to identify the very genes which were involved in plant degradation and the proteins which are thought to do the work. So just in terms of the data generated, it's quite a step forward in sequencing large communities of different microbes. And the team have managed to demonstrate that it's possible to construct genomes of new, previously unknown organisms from the same mass of data. But the authors hope that this work will ultimately help other researchers in developing more efficient ways of producing biofuels. And given that we know that the methane that uh, our animals in fields produce may actually be a greenhouse gas of its own right... Using their guts to produce biofuels seems a very sensible route. Yeah, exactly. If you could work out which microbes are the most efficient or produce exactly the biofuel that you want, then um, that's all the better for, for making the process even better. Thank you very much, Diana. And if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered so far this week, the references and transcripts for each news story we've discussed are online at thenakedscientists.com slash news. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Diana O'Carroll. Yes, a few days ago, a 7.2 magnitude earthquake hit southern Pakistan. Fortunately, it caused limited damage, but in today's world, it can seem as if there are more earthquakes than ever before. I say seem because scientists at the British Geological Survey in Edinburgh are often being asked whether earthquakes are becoming more frequent. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to talk to seismologist Brian Bapti to find out if this was actually the case. The answer involves music and begins by comparing the number of earthquakes on Earth to throwing dice. Occasionally you'll roll three sixes together. Earthquakes are a bit like that as well. You'll get times when there are a few earthquakes that happen together and then also you'll get pauses when there aren't so many earthquakes. But if you look over the year as a whole or a number of years as a whole, the numbers are all roughly the same. 
Now, you can prove this, can't you, with this computer program you got up and, and the power of music. We'll run through a sequence of earthquakes for the last decade and every time there's an earthquake, there'll be a noise, a little musical note, and what you'll be able to hear, hopefully, is that there'll be pauses, and then there'll be times when there are lots of notes all happening roughly at the same time. OK, so let's play this. So each note is an earthquake. And there's some pauses. There's a longer pause now. And you can hear how occasionally you get clusters or little groups of earthquakes happening at the same time. Then we're in a longer pause, then a few more. So we had, what, the um, South America, Indonesia? These events are all happening in the main global earthquake hotspots, if you like. They're big ones that are happening at plate boundaries. And you can see on the map that they're clustering around the Pacific in the main. Also several there together. That's right. So the, this idea that you get the clusters and gaps, earthquakes aren't happening regularly. They're not like a, a person's heartbeat. They're not going boom, boom, boom. They're going boom, 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 in that way. Can we turn it off now? Of course. <laughs> so we switched that off. That could be one reason that you get these clusters of earthquakes, mm-hmm. even though the average is unchanged. What about the fact that there are more people living in the world now. Is, is that another reason that more people can be affected by an earthquake now? It's certainly true to say that there are far more people living in earthquake-prone regions, mainly because of increases in global population. So there's this huge swathe of Asia that can be struck by big earthquakes stretching from Turkey, Iran, through India and into China, where global populations have really increased in a big way. And in those regions, earthquakes are capable of having far larger impacts than they have in the past. Also, there's a human perception thing going on here as well, because when earthquakes hit populated places, people notice them more. Obviously, we're far more aware of earthquakes that cause tragedies than the big earthquakes that happen in the middle of the Pacific. Could there be any reason, though, that earthquakes might increase? I mean, is there any link between climate change and earthquakes, for example? There isn't really a very strong relationship between earthquakes and climate change. There are some second-order effects, if you like, that might lead to increases in earthquake activity, but only in a really small way. One example of that is as glaciers melt, as ice caps melt, we get this phenomenon called glacial rebound. It's basically when the ice goes, the Earth's lithosphere tends to rebound, tends to push back up again, and that can result in earthquake activity. But generally, that won't be a big factor. And the reason for that is that earthquakes are controlled by the motion of the Earth's tectonic plates. You've got these plates that are moving around, and that motion of the plates in turn is controlled by heat release deep inside the planet. Uh, And there's only a finite budget for this heat release, which means the plates move at roughly the same speed. They're not speeding up or slowing down. So the overall energy budget for earthquakes is roughly the same. So we wouldn't really expect earthquake activity to increase unless that energy budget increased. So really there's no reason, uh, as far as you know, as far as you understand how earthquakes happen, there's no reason for the number of them to increase? That's right. As far as we understand at the moment, perhaps over much longer timescales, once we have longer windows of observation, if you like, it might become clear that there, there are these clustering phenomena happen for a reason, but at the moment it's not clear to us. It's like a radical jazz experiment gone wrong, isn't it?
That was Brian Bapti from the British Geological Survey talking to Richard Hollingham. You can download the latest Planet Earth podcast and find links to its host website, Planet Earth Online, at thenakedscientists.com forward slash planet earth. I thought that was a rather interesting experiment in jazz, actually. It sounded lovely. But now... Whilst driving on motorways or busy roads at night, many of us will have noticed the small beacons of light in the middle of the road that help to position and guide us on our travels. You probably know that these are called cat's eyes, and this week Mira and Dave have been out investigating exactly how they work. For this week's Naked Engineering, Dave and I are joined by Dr Hugh Hunt from the University of Cambridge. Now, Hugh is a fellow of Trinity College, so we're here inside his office, inside of the college. Dave, why are we here? What particular challenges of engineering are we going to be looking into? Well, if you've ever driven along the road in the dark, especially if it's a bit misty, it's really hard to see anything driving past. Even if someone's wearing a bright white shirt, the actual amount of light which gets reflected back to you is very, very limited. So there's a big engineering problem of finding a way of um, making objects really bright when you drive past them. So, um, Hugh, we have a a variety of mirrors here in front of us. Um, What will we be doing to tackle the challenge of making things visible at night time? Well, we know, for instance, that the headlights from the car are very bright. So I've got a a little torch here, and if I stare straight into it, it's, it's very dazzling. And if I have a mirror, I can reflect the light into my eyes, and it's also very dazzling. The light's just coming straight back at you. coming straight back. And if I have a piece of white paper, well, it's not at all dazzling. I guess a normal mirror will shine light straight back at you, but as soon as you get the angle slightly wrong, that beam is going to miss your face and it's not going to look very bright at all. So the challenge there, then, is designing something that can catch light from many angles and still make it visible back at you. Exactly right, Mira. And now, one thing you might have noticed, if you've ever been into a bathroom where there's two mirrors uh, side by side at right angles to each other, it's quite interesting to look at what happens. So I've got a couple of mirrors here, and um, just at right angles to each other... Now, Mira, if you look into the, uh, the mirror, you will see that your reflection is at the intersection of the two mirrors. Yeah, my face is basically, I can at, see myself at the intersection, at the, intersection. At the joint. Now, what's really interesting is if you move your head left, from left to right, your reflection will always be at that intersection. That's right, it's not moving. And it's almost as if you've got a perfect plain mirror, which is always pointing at you. It compensates for the mission. Wherever you're looking from, it always reflects directly back at you. Now, if you take a light, I've got a little torch here, and you hold that by your eyes, you'll find that all rays reflects directly back at you. Yes, um, yeah, it was coming straight back at my eyes, actually. It's hurting a little bit. <laughs> and so this is the, the basic principle of what's called a retro-reflector. It reflects directly back at you. And it, and it works because if you do the angles of reflection on the two mirrors... When you add up the two sets of reflections, the total angle of reflection is always 180 degrees. So whichever direction the light goes into this pair of mirrors, it comes back at 180 degrees. Um, So this works great if you're moving left or right, but at the moment if you move up and down, your image moves, so it's not going to work very well like that. How do we get around that problem? The next clever trick is to have three mirrors at right angles. So imagine you go into your bathroom and you've got one mirror on the floor and... Two mirrors at right angles on the walls. Which you've now constructed now here. Constructed. Well, where do you see your reflection now, Mira? Is it? It's at the intersection, but of where all the three mirrors meet. Right. Now you take the, tor- the torch and you put that by your eyes and you find- should find... Oh, it's glaring back at me. And as you move left, right, up, down, any direction... 
The light is just chasing me. Always. It's spooky. So whereabouts are these retro reflectors used then? Well, they're used in all sorts of applications. So perhaps some of the common ones that we're we're most familiar with are reflective clothing, uh, reflectors on the side of the road, and and even reflectors on your bicycle. They are uh, retro reflectors. And they all work, generally speaking, on the principle of this this corner cube idea, the three mirrors at right angles. And in fact, it's called a corner cube. So that is quite a a wide range of uses, really. But um, Dave, another use of them that's quite commonly known is cat's eyes that we see dividing lanes in the road for us to see lane markings and essentially see when we're driving on busy roads at night. That's right. In the 30s, um, there was a guy called Percy Shaw who was driving along the road and suddenly discovered it's really, really hard to follow the road in the mist in the dark. And then he saw some cats and their eyes were shining back really brightly. If you ever shined a torch at a cat, you see their eyes reflecting incredibly brightly. This is because they have reflectors, essentially, at the backs of their eyes. Yeah, their eyes act as retroreflectors. So he attempted to copy these um, and put them in the road. We have some of these cat's eyes here with us. So how do these actually work, Hugh? They work by taking the light coming out of our headlights and shining it directly back at us. And there's some really neat things about the design of these cat's eyes. Firstly, of course, they're optically uh, very good and they reflect the light back. But what would happen if they got covered in mud or, or grit and stuff from the road? But one of the really lovely things about this particular design is that every time you drive over them, there's a little rubber flap at the front, a bit like eyelashes, really. And the very action of driving over these things it pushes it pushes down, the cat's eyes down, and clears the mud off them. And it's just such a beautiful piece of clever engineering. Because, of course, this has to be designed so that over the lifetime of these cat size, you've got several million lorries passing over. They've got to survive uh, cold winters, snow plows. They've got to survive hot summers. So do these cat size follow the main principles we've been talking about then with corner cubes? Well, there are different types of cat size. The ones that uh, were developed in the 30s are actually more like a, a combination of lenses and in fact operate much more in the way a cat's eye actually works. Yeah, that's right. If a cat's looking at something bright like a torch, the light from the torch will get focused onto its retina, so it gets an image of the torch. But the cat's eye's got a reflecting membrane at the back of the eye, which reflects the light straight back the way it came out through the lens, which focuses the light exactly straight back towards the torch, which was putting the light out in the first place. It's really a very nice little uh, bit of geometry and, and looking at how you can design a couple, a lens and a, and a mirror, curved mirror, curved lenses, such that you get the light to come straight back out the way it came in. But it's much cheaper and much easier to make a, a corner cube idea. You can just press them out of a piece of plastic, make cheap reflectors for your bikes. And those sorts of reflectors are used on the posts on the side of the road. They're not driven over and they don't get covered in um, mud and grit from the surface of the road. They're just much more like bike reflectors that are uh, stuck onto the posts. You sometimes get them stuck onto the road, but they tend to be the ones which fall off within a couple of years. But also, uh, along the motorways and things, you see different colours of these cat's eyes to mark out, say, the hard shoulder and things like that. How do these work? It's just uh, coloured plastic uh, or coloured glass. So in the same way as if you shine a light through a, a piece of red plastic, the light turns red. So if you make the, if the plastic is coloured red, it'll be red. So there are just such a wide range of uses for the concept of just reflection. Well, it's wonderful. It's one of these things that if you actually stop and think about how they work, it's not, not obvious when you find out how they work. It's just fantastic to understand it. 
So some basic principles of physics get engineered to help us see at night. That was Dr Hugh Hunt from the University of Cambridge talking to Miracent Lingam and to Dave Ansell. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Diana O'Carroll. Get your questions in by email to chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join us on our Facebook page. You can find that at thenakedscientists.com forward slash Facebook. Now, leprosy is caused by an infection of mycobacterium bacteria, the same family as the pathogens that cause TB. Most people here in the UK think of leprosy as a medieval disease, one long since wiped out. But sadly, that's not the case. Leprosy still affects people worldwide. And Professor Diana Lockwood from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine joins us now to tell us more. Thank you very much for joining us, Diana. I wonder if you could start by telling us how big a problem is leprosy today? Oh, leprosy is a very big and important problem. About 250,000 new cases are detected worldwide each year. And that number is, is pretty stable at the moment. So that means that we've got a lot of new people coming in and the, the risk is that they will also develop disabilities that we associate with leprosy. And that will add to the number of leprosy cases that are around. Where in the world do we actually find it? Is it like other diseases that we think are medieval and wiped out? Because I know that things like the plague is actually still around in certain parts of the world. Is it just hanging on in certain pockets or is it spreading around the world still? 60% of the world's cases are in India and India is certainly the hot spot and northern India um, has more cases than than anywhere else. Rather surprisingly, Brazil is the next most endemic country and particularly in northern Brazil, again associated with poverty. Uh, So Brazil has about 11% of the world's cases. But all through Africa, places like Ethiopia, Nigeria, uh, Mozambique, Madagascar, these all have large numbers of new leprosy cases each year. How is it actually transmitted from one person to the next? What happens is that a very small proportion of people with leprosy are infectious. I want to emphasise that because you don't get leprosy from touching somebody. And what happens is that the small number of people who are infectious cough and sneeze the leprosy germ out into the environment. And it's a very hardy germ and it can survive in the environment for up to a month. Then people breathe it in. And most people who breathe the leprosy germ in, then mount a protective immune response to it. So I've worked with uh, leprosy in India and Ethiopia, and, and I've obviously met the leprosy germ many times. And so I've presumably, although I've not tested myself, developed protective immunity to it. And that's what most people who live in leprosy endemic countries do. So it gets into our system through the lungs, but what does it actually do to the body? Once this bacterium is in there, what does it do? Well, there are two critical things. Firstly, it has a a receptor to bind to the nasal mucosa. It crosses the nasal mucosa and then it binds to uh, macrophages uh, and also to Schwann cells in peripheral nerves. And that's important because that's how you get the clinical signs of leprosy. 
Now, Schwann cells are the cells that actually make the protective coating for our nerves, aren't they? So if they're binding to these cells, they're stopping our nerves from being protected properly and our nerves will therefore break down. That's right, yes. And so that one of the very important signs of leprosy is loss of nerve function, which is manifest as either losing sensation in your hands and feet or lo- losing power in your hands and feet. And You know, people have this idea that leprosy eats away your body, but it doesn't actually eat away your body. What happens is that you lose pain sensation in your hands and feet, and then you don't feel injuries, and so you get what we call traumatic injuries. So the stereotype that leprosy causes your fingers to drop off is not actually because your fingers drop off as a direct result of the presence of the bacteria, but because you injure your fingers so often because you don't feel the pain there anymore that you're quite likely to lose fingers, toes and other extremities through that mechanism. Yes, that's, that's right. And so when you diagnose a new patient with leprosy, it's really important that you do a careful examination to find out if they've got undetected loss of sensation in their hands and feet and then institute a kind of um, health education programme with them, which obviously will be very much guided by the kind of activities that that person does. So, for instance, you know, if you're a a farmer in Africa, then you might be at risk by walking too far or holding your hoe too tightly. But if you're an Indian housewife, then your danger area is the kitchen and it's very easy to burn yourself uh, in the kitchen. So how is it actually treated? Can we use standard antibiotics? Yes, we've got very good antibiotics for treating leprosy and the key is a a drug called rifampicin and every patient with leprosy will get a combination of either two or three drugs, antibiotics against leprosy and they will take them for either six or, or 12 months. And the beauty of the rifampicin is that you only have to take it once a month because, again, the Mycobacterium leprae is a very slow-growing organism, and so, fortunately, uh, we only have to take the rifampicin once a month. The other antibiotics you have to take every day. Is this a cure for leprosy, or is it merely a case that once you've contracted it, we have drugs that can manage it, and you're going to end up on these drugs for the rest of your life? No, it cures you of the infection. What it doesn't cure you of is the inflammation that goes with it. We talked about the mycobacterium going to the Schwann cells and skin macrophages. And what happens is that the body then mounts an inflammatory response. And that is far more difficult to to switch off. And that can go on for a long time. Uh, And so uh, patients uh, will quite often need to have a course of steroids along with their antibiotics to try and switch off that inflammation because it's that inflammation that's destroying the nerves. Well, thank you very much. We'll have to leave it there for now. That's Professor Diana Lockwood from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We will come back to Diana later on in the show, so if you have any questions for her, then do get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Join us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists. Now, to help us understand leprosy, it's important to look into the past and see what evidence we can find for when and where it's prevalent. One way to do this is to look for the marks it leaves on the bones. Joining us now is Professor Charlotte Roberts, a bioarchaeologist from Durham University, and she studies evidence for disease in skeletons that are excavated from archaeological sites. Hello. Hello there. Right, so what is the evidence of leprosy in, in bones? How do we spot it? 
Well, it primarily affects the bones of the face, the nasal area, where the bacteria, as Diana's just said, is inhaled, and you get destruction of, of those areas of the face. And then it, it also affects the nerves, again, as Diana has said, where you get loss of sensation and loss of proper function of, of the muscles or the nerves supplying the muscles. And so all these manifestations of leprosy can affect the bones. So we get the loss of bone from the upper jaw, loss of front teeth, uh, perforated uh, palate bones in the skull. And then we, because of um, development of ulcers on the hands and the feet due, due to lack of sensation in those areas, you'll, you'll get uh, involvement of the bones of the hands and the feet and you'll get loss of parts of those bones. Okay, so it sounds like it's mostly skull, hands and, and feet. That's right, yes. But do you see um, any other diseases um, which affect bones in a similar way that could be confused with leprosy? Um, yes, in the skull uh, you may get um, people with tuberculosis or indeed syphilis where you'll get similar changes. But what we're always trying to do when we're looking at skeletons is to look at the distribution pattern of the lesions that we see in the bones, which helps us make specific diagnoses. And so if you've got a complete skeleton, I have to admit it's not often in archaeological sites where the whole skeleton is preserved, you can look at the distribution pattern. And you can be pretty safe uh, when you have someone who's been suffering from leprosy. So the more of the, uh, the body you've got, the better. That's right. Um, so... Can we confirm a diagnosis just from the bones or can you use other techniques? Um, has DNA been used on them? Um, yes, in, in, well, yes, since 1994 actually people have started to extract the DNA of the bacteria that causes leprosy from bones of the skeleton quite successfully. In many cases this has confirmed a diagnosis where we have seen the, the bony changes that we would recognise as leprosy and then the DNA has confirmed that diagnosis. People have also taken um, histological sections from bones and found particular patterning in those histological sections that are recognisable as leprosy. So yes, there are other methods that we can use, but most people don't have access to the, that methodology and, and tend to just look at the visual signs of leprosy in the skeleton. Yeah, I suppose that's the, the beauty of looking at the bones is that you can almost identify it in the field on yeah. site. I mean, the other thing to say is, of course, that depending on how resistant you are to the bacteria, you'll develop a, a different patterning of bony changes in the skeleton. So if, you, if you're very resistant to the bacteria, depending on your immune system strength, then um, you may not develop the very obvious signs. But if you're not very resistant to the bacteria, it'll be very obvious in the skeleton. Okay, so when do you get the, the first evidence of leprosy? What's the, the oldest skeleton that's been found? Well, there have been suggestions that we've, we've got um, evidence from about 2500 BC in Turkey and in Nubia and in India about 2000 BC. There is a suggestion that there's a, there's a child skeleton from a Scottish site dated to 2000 BC, but that hasn't been confirmed yet. So it's pretty ancient then? It is pretty ancient, but it doesn't really increase in frequency until about the 12th to 16th century in Europe. And then it really seems to increase in frequency along with the introduction of leprosy hospitals which were founded around that time. Of course, and the, and the leprosy hospitals are the things that I think most people will have heard about. So... Can you tell us a bit about the hospitals? How many were there just uh, in Britain, for example? Just in Britain, probably uh, over 300 in England alone and mainly in the, founded in the south and east. And this was between the 11th and 16th centuries. 
they tended to be founded by wealthy benefactors that, who were really concerned about um, their own salvation and they really controlled admissions and whether you got admitted if you were diagnosed with leprosy depending on how depended on how rich you were and maybe your religious affiliation and, and maybe your sex you know maybe the males got admitted more than the females Okay, and, and most people say that these leprosy hospitals were sort of built outside cities and that um, people with leprosy were kind of sidelined or, or marginalised from uh, mainstream society. So do you think this is true? Um, I don't think so, no, because recent evidence that I've looked at suggests that the majority of individuals with the bony changes of leprosy were not actually buried in leprosy hospital cemeteries. They were buried in the normal community cemetery, and that, I think, suggests that perhaps our assumption that everyone was stigmatised in the past doesn't hold true and that communities actually accepted these people. Yeah, I wonder where uh, where this idea comes from then. Well, I think it's 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 a view that was actually forwarded in the 19th century, and that was based on medieval evidence. I think the historical data that's been looked at by people like Carol Rawcliffe at University of East Anglia and and myself looking at the skeletal evidence for leprosy is really turning those assumptions we have about how people were treated with leprosy in the past over. Well, as uh, my director of studies used to say, history is the handmaiden of archaeology. Well, <laughs> that was Professor Charlotte Roberts, and she's from Durham University. Thank you. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Diana O'Carroll. As it's World Leprosy Day today, the 30th of January, we're talking about leprosy, both in the past and the current situation. We're joined by Professor Diana Lockwood from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and by Professor Charlotte Roberts from Durham University. Right, so I've got a question for Charlotte here, um, and it's also all about leprosy and TB. So I've heard that uh, the BCG vaccine can actually give you some protection against leprosy. That's the vaccine against TB. So what do we see about the relationship between leprosy and TB in the past? Well, we see evidence for both leprosy and tuberculosis in skeletons, and the suggestion is that in Europe, leprosy declines about the 14th century while tuberculosis takes off as a major infectious disease and there's a belief that that's linked to increasing urbanisation, close living between individuals. Leprosy and tuberculosis are both caused by mycobacteria but different species, so mycobacterium leprae versus mycobacterium tuberculosis. And there's a suggestion that increasing exposure to tuberculosis will reduce the chances of contracting leprosy. And it's in, actually quite interesting to see that evidence in skeletons early on in that medieval period tends to be the low-resistant form of the disease. People are expressing the disease in their skeletons very obviously. And as time goes by, when you get into the 16th, 17th centuries, um, they're getting a less severe form of leprosy, something called tuberculoid leprosy, suggesting that they're more, more resistant to the bacteria. But there's also less evidence of leprosy during those periods too. And I suppose one of them might kill you a bit faster than the other. Yeah, right? yeah, and in fact today I think one of the major causes of death people with leprosy is tuberculosis. Well, that, um, of course, brings me on to the modern clinical perspective. Diana, do you see these, these infections together very often? Uh, you certainly see them together, but not, not very often, no. 
Are there any other interactions between different diseases? Of course, there are things like HIV, which are in the same parts of the world as you were saying, we still see leprosy. Um, that knocks your immune system almost totally dead. Does that mean that leprosy runs absolute riot? Yeah, we were very uh, worried that at the beginning of the HIV epidemic that we would see a lot more leprosy and a lot worse leprosy uh, cases. But what's actually happened is that having HIV doesn't seem to make you more likely to get leprosy. Paradoxically, what we have seen now that people have antiretroviral treatment is that when they do get leprosy, they get leprosy with a lot more immune uh, activation. And uh, the, the inflammation that I was talking about uh, earlier occurs in a very florid form and is quite difficult to switch off again. So it so, actually complicates the issue quite a lot. Yes, yes, it does. Okay, I've also got a question here from Sean Hoskins. Uh, it's another one for you, Charlotte. If one can determine a past disease from examining a bone, can one saw somebody's femur in half and figure out how old the person is? Well, we try not to saw femurs in <laughs> half uh, to find out age. Um, we normally look at degeneration, uh, particularly of the pelvis and, and the ribs and the skull, particular features that we recognise as associated with age. However, having said that, it's not a very accurate science um, because people age and degenerate in different ways and at different rates. But you can actually look at the microscopic structure of bones like the femur and you, looking at a particular picture gives a closer correlation to the age at death of that individual. But you can also look at teeth and you look at the roots of the teeth and as you get older, they become more translucent if you put a light behind them. And that's better correlated with age at death too. But that's not a destructive method like you would do for the femur. Briefly, um, I, I understand that once adults sort of start dying after the age of 35, that's when it becomes really difficult to, to assign an age to their body. So which is the best method for, for doing those adults? The adult, well, it's looking at the cut femurs and the teeth, really. Uh, but most people, again, really don't have access to the technology to do that. But I think the idea that everyone died young in the past doesn't hold true because I don't think our method methods are really well developed enough to pick out those people in the older age groups yet. I think so too. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, well, it's time for question of the um, it's time for question of the week. Even <laughs> I can't even say it. I'm that excited. Um, well, this week will these hands now be clean? This is Emilio Romero. I'm calling from Guayaquil, Ecuador. First of all, congratulations on a great show. Now my question. The other day, after watching a TV commercial, my daughter asked me, how do we know that certain disinfectants kill 99.9% of the germs? And what would happen if we use it twice? Would that kill 100%? Thank you. What does the marketing mean? And will two hand washes serve better than one? Hi, I'm Jane Greatrex from the Health Protection Agency in Cambridge. Well, it's not a straightforward answer. The 99.9% claim that manufacturers put on their products is true based upon the tests that they carry out, but these are carried out under laboratory conditions in test tubes and on plates. It's a little bit more complicated than that in real life, and it really depends on what we're talking about here. If we're talking about a cough droplet, a cough droplet might contain about 200 million flu germs in a winter season and about a million or so bacteria. And if you use that hand gel, then you will indeed get the numbers of viruses and bacteria down probably to levels below that which is infectious. However, you will not remove all of them. And that's because of two things. 
one, your hands are very good at retaining bacteria and viruses, and two, the numbers of bacteria and viruses that you start with are such that even 0.1% is still a big number of bacteria and viruses. If you kill even that 0.1% with another hand wash, you'll still be left with some remaining. Now, if, for instance, we were talking about fecal contamination, not a nice subject, but then we're talking about much larger numbers of viruses and bacteria. And the big complication there is you need fewer of those to cause an infection. So the straight answer was you won't remove all the bacteria and viruses and that in some situations it's really not very good news. Two scrubbings will remove more germs, but 99.9% of a lot is still going to be a lot. It all depends on what the infectious dose is of a specific pathogen. If you only need one bacterium to infect you, then sometimes even the most thorough washing isn't enough. And on our discussion forum at thenakedscientists.com slash forum, Geezer said that obviously two lots of hand washing will clean 99.999% of all the germs, whereas three lots of hand washing would remove 99.99999% of them. But as you've said, again, if there's a lot there to begin with, that's still going to leave a serious dose of bacteria. RD added that some of the surviving germs might include the extremophile bacteria, which can even flourish in really salty solutions or even in bleach. And on the slightly more cynical side, both Ian Smith and Don Wan said that 0.1% is a handy get-out clause for the manufacturer so that they can't be sued. (laughs) But from destroying your hand flora to preserving world flora. Are e-cards good for the environment? Hello, Naked Scientists. This is Dirk Slavinsky from Perth, Western Australia. With the festive season behind us and Valentine's Day just around the corner, I was wondering, is it more environmentally friendly to send an e-card than it is to send a traditional greetings card considering the amount of energy needed to run and maintain the internet? Thanks and happy net surfing! Can anyone out there do the maths on this one? Send your answers and numbers into chris at thenakedscientists.com or join the debate, and that's on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana. And as always, if you've got any questions for us that you think Diana can tackle or give her special question of the week treatment, let us know by email chris at thenakedscientists.com. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to Diana Lockwood from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Charlotte Roberts from Durham University, and of course Diana O'Carroll, and our production team Tom Simkins, Mira Santalingam and Dave Ansell. Next week we're going to find out how new computer components can be designed to run on as little energy as possible, and how we can move the world's computing around to make things more sustainable. Have a great week. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. 
Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.